inclination behind this is to keep differentiating uh, what seems to be a very conglomerate mass of experience into factors that are mutable, changeable, uh, not solid. Mm. With a sense with that uh, fundamental recognition of the dependent, contingent, impermanent, relative nature of what we call existence or power or becoming, the realm of becoming, mm. that which is able to perceive this uh, is liberated from the oppression of it. Mm. Liberated from being involved with it. Uh, liberated from fascination with it. Uh, free from um, having... Um, struggling with it. Uh, speculating about it. And so with this release of these relationships, intentions that form this bonding there is an unbonding or Nibbana uh, Nibbana is uh, experienced as peaceful sublime mm. it's definitely experienced but it's not existence mm. in, in the technical Buddhist way of seeing things existence is that which stands out as a, some kind of object or another yeah. and uh, Nibbana is not an object that stands out as something or another um, it's the release from that now if we contemplate any of these lists you see there are innumerable factors and you can divide it up into like a pie, you can divide it up into many, di- in many different ways. Five of these, six of these, three of these, five of these, 28 of these, and so forth. And it's just the ways of dividing things up, you know, differentiating this conglomerate of existence. For an average person, probably is able to recognize there's a subjective aspect to it and an objective aspect to it. There's things that I see and things that I am. They would, they would note this. So you divide it into two. Uh, but, um, you know, the Buddhist perspective would say, yeah, there's a, there's a sense base and a sense object. Yeah. So it's not really even two, because there's the seeing and a seer and a scene. Mm. It's really three. You know, there's a seeing, consciousness, a seer, an intention to see, and a scene, an object of attention. So there's three. And so actually you can't really say there's three because there's a tactile sense as well. And if you focus on it more clearly, you recognize the experience of being touched is rather different from the experience of seeing something. You know, you're a different being. <laughs> you know, uh, very obviously, quite distinctly different being. The subject feels very different looking out of the window than being rained upon, <laughs> right? The tactile sense, feeling comes in. Mm-hmm. So the subjective sense itself is not really a concrete entity, but a, just a, a sense that itself can be manifold. And so it goes on and on and on. There's, you know, ways we can distinguish. But you might say very brief, one, one thing that must be made clear 
is because something's written down in a word, it doesn't mean it's necessarily an object. It's an object in the fact that we can name it, but actually many of these things are things we would hardly regard as phenomena at all, like intention, or, you know, that's a factor, or or attention, or feeling. So we would hardly recognize those perhaps as discrete objects, but they definitely manifest in an area of significance in this conglomerate. They're bound up with it. Intention is often bound up with desire, and desire hooks onto an object, a sense object, seems to hook onto a form. But actually, if you look at it more clearly, it hooks onto a feeling. We might think that the form will give us the feeling, so we hook onto the form of something that looks tasty, you know. But actually, it's the the feeling that arises with uh, with what, with the perception of gratification, perhaps, of one set of feelings, hunger disappearing, the disappearance of that experience gives rise to the feeling of relief, pleasure. And of course there can be many different forms in which this happens. So intention is then hooked up to that. So we can't really separate. And clearly if one has no appetite, food doesn't taste good. So intention becomes a very significant factor uh, in terms of how things manifest for us. If we're not interested, things are not very pleasant at all. So the very nature of inclination very much affects the apparently objective world. You see how these things are all mutual and bound up together. Attention. What do you give attention to? If you even contemplate just the what you do with your eyes, that form of attention, you can see, you know, particular details that that either you've chosen to look for or that annoy you or please you, something that sticks out. You might get hypnotized by a mark on the floor. You know, oh, look at that, look at that. You know. <laughs> or, um, you know, or something rather larger, like the how the seats are arranged. Cushions are not arranged very neatly, or another person doesn't see it at all. So attention is also very uh, brings objects into one's awareness. I was giving a retreat last year in London in a, in a school and we had a the meeting hall was a classroom as you walked out of the meeting hall you had to walk along a path past the football field it was for the kids to play on you swing around and there's a place we have the meal right outside the hall there's this 60 foot high at least tree very few people saw it because when you go from the meeting hall you, your aim is to the towards that door where you prepare the meal. So you see that, there's this massive tree. And I said, notice the tree, what tree? (laughs) It's not not small. (laughs) 
And yet, how many people saw it? Not because they were blind. I'm sure their eyes must have noticed it. You know, nobody walked into it. <laughs> but just the sense is no, no, because it's of no significance. If you're a botanist, you might not have noticed the buildings. You might have noticed the tree instead. Mm-hmm. If you're a thief, you'd probably notice people's pockets or their purses. So attention creates objects, doesn't it? Or it doesn't really create them, but it extracts them from this conglomerate mass of potential objects, things that are potentially existing. And some of these uh, potential existences are things like, uh, are not so much material, they're things like anxiety. Uh, And the, the mind can be attuned to that. And notice and feel that, yeah. or criticism, irritability, and be affected by that. So that's an object. But where's that? Where do you put your irritability? Is it in the air, in your foot? No, it's in this conglomerate, which is both subjective, objective, immaterial, material, fine material, mental, physical, sensual. It's all this. So this is all being presented as this is stuff one has to you know, get some, un- be unbound from. Mm. Most crucially, of, of course, the unbinding in terms of intention, what one's motivated towards, and uh, attention to a degree, you know, so one's not being mesmerized by um, um, phenomena that uh, cause one suffering. The phrase is used is one should know wisdom is to know what is to be followed and what is not to be followed. So that initiation wisdom is just to recognize, yeah, you can see that, yeah, you can notice that, yeah, you can feel all kinds of strong feelings about it, don't follow it, because it's going nowhere useful. It's either going somewhere directly uh, dukkha or unskillful or hurtful or, or obsessive, or it's just irrelevant. Not, not, don't need it. If you don't need it, don't bother with it. You know? We need all the kind of skill and focus to get unbound. We don't want to be just dithering, getting lost in, in uh, phenomena that don't go anywhere useful. This, of course, this very approach is rather frustrating for our, for our minds, for our intellects, because we like to know it. We like to know all kinds of things, and human knowledge has expanded colossally. The amount of information we have now is vast and huge. So much we have more information than we can handle. So our intelligence gets numbed out by the sheer deluge of it. And yet there's still more coming in. How relevant is it? How useful is it? How skillful is it? How conducive is it? Is it possible to say enough? Don't need to know the latest da 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 da. Don't need to have things exactly because it's just too much, too useless or of secondary importance. This kind of what, it's not bad, it's just not relevant. This what is to be followed, what's not to be followed. Because we have this conglomerate and it's got its own momentum to it. It's 
already rolling. And the nature of this rolling on is it's, it's vipaka, it's called, it's the result and effects, it's still bouncing. You know, the ball got thrown, it's still bouncing. And that ball has been thrown a lot of times. So this conglomerate is still throwing up stuff. Mm. The wheel is still spinning, it got kicked and it's still spinning. And every now and then we give it another kick and it spins some more. So naturally, you know, in terms of retreat, a lot of stuff comes up and it's up to each one to, to, to scan it. Is this useful? Is this relevant? Don't know right now. What happens? Experiment, make mistakes, find out for yourself. But certainly we do have the boundaries, which is so important. The restraint, sense restraint, um, morality, even boundaries of attention, boundaries of where we go, boundaries of behavior, and they keep it from straying out too far. And then you're contemplating as material arises. Is this something we just step back from and let pass? Is it something we uh, need to respond to with a skillful approach? Or is it something we need to just say, not now? And you say you just try one of those three and see what seems to work. Yeah. If it keeps coming back, the likelihood is, well, you better look at it. You better respond to this. Yeah. This has been, you know, ten times today. So what's this about? And very, uh, if it comes up into the thinking mind, very scattered, the thinking mind rapidly differentiates into past and future and self and others and could be and should be in five alternatives. So this makes it very difficult to, to, uh, to really track in a contemplative way that's purposeful. Speculative thinking. But um, what we can do with this is just review the whole um, quality of the topic in terms of, of its feeling tone disagreeable, pleasurable, of its ethical quality, this is conducive, this is associated with craving or associated with ill will, or it feels restless, or it feels busy, or it feels tense and nervy. Uh, but be careful with these. At the same time, there's not the appropriation of, of blame and accusation. This is why some of this is rather difficult. Yeah, and we feel, oh, you shouldn't have that. Uh, it shouldn't be have ill will. Mm. Well, really, the only people who never experience ill will are uh, like arahants, you know. So you must experience ill will, surely. Uh, um, <laughs> to some degree, either you imagine it's coming to you from somebody else, or you imagine, or you remember the occasions when ill will, or hostility, or neglect, or abuse or dismissal or disrespect is shown to you. Yeah. Or you have those attitude towards others. Those those don't necessarily follow them, they come up. So then we might say, okay, this is the heart which has got a certain sourness in it, a certain bruisedness, a certain prickliness to it. And if you translate these rather abstract terms such as ill will into felt terms like prickling, uh, spiky, uh, sour. Yeah. Okay. No, right. 
then you're going to come into a perception and you come into that, you translate that whole line of thought into a single perception, sour, unwilling, or crushed, damaged, bruised, or whatever it is. How's that? And you relate to that. You relate to that. Not how do I get you know away from it, but how do I un- unbind it? And so the relationships that are su- supportive to unbinding, to not concretizing, and to get rid of something already makes it more concrete. Whereas to allow something to unravel or dissolve is much more the way that uh, is conducive to liberation. So we might fear of taking this example of ill will, sourness. Oh yeah, there's that. How is that? What's happening in your body with that? You're aware of that as a quality. It's energies, it's tension, it's vibrations. And just that separating out, differentiation. And your intention now is not hostile or towards that. Intention is quite dispassionate. And then what does it need? Soothing. Accepting, softening, mm. comforting. Not just those words, but a responsiveness. So you take it to the chitta, the heart faculty, uh, with uh, where the in- intention can shift. Mm. So your intention is not just... Um, reflexive but responsive it's not just a reaction to unpleasant feeling but a rather more mature relationship to the unpleasant and this one is not just eliminating uh, or freeing the displeasure but also you're immeasurably strengthening, amplifying, resourcing the faculty of heart. Our responsive capacity. It's not difficult to feel comfortable with things that are comfortable. To feel comfortable with things that are uncomfortable, that's practice. Because not the, because the phenomenon itself is dependent, its dependency, its continuing, persevering quality is sustained through an unconscious grasp and holding of it. The relationship is just fixation. 
and then of course the memories and the, the, the should and I wish I wasn't can come up out of that fixation but the relationship is just the fixation or clinging upadana so if that relationship is changed to one of uh, responsiveness flexibility what does this need what's helpful then one's heart is also being freed from the tendency to fixate on the agreeable, the disagreeable, the known, the unknown, the success, the failure. The heart that's not fixated is free from this. Clinging, fixation, is the term that covers um, or relates to the relationship to the kanda aggregates. They're called upadana kanda. Um, so in this, this uh, categorization refers to that which is affected or subject or um, prone to Upadana, clinging, fixation, generating a subject and an object. Notice when there is a fixation experience, one becomes something, definitely. One becomes the aggrieved. One becomes the guilty. One becomes the the needy, or the triumphant, the conceited, the supreme, or any of these positions, one definitely becomes something, This when it begins to exist as, a, as an entity in one of these many, many forms. So this is the subject, subjective quality becomes a distinct subject, a persona, you might say. Not that we're in one at any particular time, we might very well fluctuate from being, you know, one of these micro-personas, the one who's always responsible, the one who must make things work, or the one who can't do it right, or you name it, you know. And so, with that fixation generating the subject, then this becomes the mode that continues. Mm. That's the locking. So then that mode of being starts to notice other things that fit into its mode of being. The aggrieved recognizes in the past, I was treated badly. Right now, this isn't going the way I like it. In the future, I will be treated. <laughs> he treated me, she treated me, they treated me. Everyone, <laughs> Buddhism treated me badly. <laughs> you know, it goes like that. And generally, there's some statistical evidence that <laughs> one can amass with this. It's, yeah, everybody gets it. But, um, yeah, you want to go on like that? This is surely not to be followed. 
Uh, and the nature of fixation is it, it out of this conglomerate, contingent, very fluid, dynamic, mutable process, it selects and crystallizes those aspects of phenomena that will reify and confirm its fixation. So we hypnotize, we self-mesmerize with this fixation experience, upadana. And so this presentation of aggregates, these are the, the ways in which experience manifests that can be fixated upon. What are these? Form. One fixates upon form. This is my form. May my form be this. May my form not be that. Now we see this, say, in physical terms, you know, uh, may my hair not grow white and fall out or something. May my teeth be pure and not stained. May my body be slender and not fat or whatever, gross, gross things about form. I was young, now I'm old. I'm too young, not old enough. I wish I was like this, I wish I was like that. My form is this way and that way. Fixating upon this, one is constantly comparing and contrasting and finding fault with form or delight in it. I am fantastic, looking great. Um, May I never decline from this. May others see me this way. I'll be seen as fantastic and great and attractive and wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a president who's constantly obsessed with this experience of being wonderful <laughs> and needing to have everybody tell him that as well. <laughs> Think, wow, well, this is not to be followed, but it's not following not my advice clearly. But such is the way of famous people, <laughs> you know, particularly those who, who push themselves towards fame and power. There's some need to be seen as something. They, they inflate to self-glorification of some kind or another. Form, yes, gross form, subtle form, um, even mental form. Mm. May my mind be expansive rather than contracted. We are attracted to um, seeing beautiful form outside us, or what we call ourself. Beautiful form gives rise to pleasure, or perceptions of pleasure. These aggregates are really not separable. They're all bound up, one might say, just as you could look at the cup and see the shape of it, or the color of it, or, you know, the shape will be the general rupa, the color, several colors, white and blue. Mm. You might also see, oh, there's something I can put some coffee in, it's a meaning to it. Mm. And there's a volitional tendency that it signifies, like, oh, pick it, there's the handle, pick it up. The handle means pick me up. Mm. So there's a certain, it conditions a certain responsiveness and it's an object both in visual consciousness and in mental consciousness and then it can be in tactile consciousness or in you know taste consciousness and so on so this thing this apparent thing is really a conglomerate of uh, form feeling you know or 
so the perception, so the feeling might be um, pleasant, nice cup, it's not cracked. A perception, cup, and then volitional formation to pick it up, um, and then various objects of consciousness. So all that, a cup that you, that you don't see as a cup becomes a bell. And then why is this not a pudding basin? Because you ring it, you don't put dough inside it. It could be a urinal, you know. <laughs> but, so it's kind of like, it's potentially many different things, isn't it? But in this particular place on a cushion with nothing in it, and when a striker beside it, we assume it's a bell. Not going to make put custard in it. What is it? So it, we we it's a, it's certainly it's got a form. It occupies some space. We could say that, and yet, yeah, that's not all that it is. So it never exists as one thing alone, but a conglomerate. But we might say, if you look at the, just the sheer form factor of it, it's like something occupying space. And say, well, I don't have to necessarily think of it as a bell. Therefore, the volitional tendency to strike it doesn't arise. To make a sound out of it doesn't arise. Yeah. One sees it as basically an object of visual consciousness. I have no desire to lick it, to taste it. So various perceptions trigger off volitional tendencies that, that illuminate certain one of the consciousnesses. This is going to be sight and potential for sound. And so you see that an object as such is really <sighs> a very contingent and dependently arising phenomenon. Uh, So we experience, when we're in that mode of attention, awareness of that, and seeing the various things that could or couldn't be, and seeing them all as just nothing solid, nothing really that driving, could be anything or nothing, what's that like? Confusing, disorienting? Hmm? It's quite liberating. There's the possibility to do a number of things. Or just contemplate this wavering of of mind and soothing, steadying. Knowing this is the aggregates arising, playing, mixing with each other. They always do this. And never never come up with anything that's finally, eternally true, valid, or eternally satisfying. Seeing this, 
reviewing this, uh, one becomes dispassionate. Jitta loses his interest, turns to the deathless. This is sublime. This is peaceful. Stilling of his volitional tendencies. The relinquishment of the inherited assumptions and attitudes. Destruction of craving. Dispassion. Ceasing. Nibbana. Non-fixation. Chitta turns, directs, one directs one's chitta thus. This is an interesting phrase, so what's this chitta in terms of aggregates? Where's the chitta in terms of aggregates? It's a very common, frequent word, chitta, in the suttas. One of the most common words that's used. Unlike quite a few of these very common words, very difficult to translate. Uh, like dukkha. It's not quite suffering. Stress, pressure, non-satisfaction, troubling, doesn't quite arrive, inconclusive, that kind of... Dukkha. Like a wheel on a, on a rutted road that doesn't quite smoothly flow, just clunk, whoops, oh, clunk, <laughs> like that. What's chitta? So, you know, translators need to find a word, so they say, well, let's call it mind. Then they're trying to struggle, how do you translate mano, because that's also mind. So, well, mano, oh dear, we'll call that intellect, or something like that, or, and then, you know, this is just the problem of words. But if we contemplate how it's used, yeah. it's very much the subjective awareness. And it has certain, depending on the context in which it's used. Remember, we're in a very fluid universe. We are a fluid universe. This cosmos, this existence is flowing and dynamic and shifting and morphing. That's why you, you're very difficult to pin anything down as finally exactly anything, because depending on how it's being used, it shifts. <laughs> yeah. We can't even define a cup now <laughs> as being anything that in itself apart from a series of potentials that crystallize and probably look different for different people. What are you going to do with with mind? So you might say uh, chitta has certain certain properties associated with it. One, it's it's aware. Everything, it receives impressions. There's something receiving existence. Something is happening. The very fact of happening. Subjective. 
it's affected, it trembles, it's a resonance, there's a shifting, there's a definitely a tremble or a tensile sense, painful or pleasant, neutral, one, it's a registering of experience. There's something, it doesn't just disappear, something it touches and is, you know, it's very much associated with a sense of a subject, either distinct historical personality, or my mind is suffering, or my heart is suffering, or my heart is happy, or my heart is uplifted, or my mind is refined. It seems to be an entity at times. It changes a lot. changes a lot so it's got no fixed form it can change in mood it can change it can be expansive it can spread over space and time it can be occupied by phenomena that, that seem to have manifested years ago it can even be occupied with phenomena that don't exist So it's curious, it's got a vast, measureless expanse to it. It's permeated. So many things happen to it, drift through it, move through it. Thoughts move through it. Feelings move through it. Sensations move through it. What is this? Hmm? No fixed boundaries. Can you call it a thing if it does no boundaries? Mm. So it changes. The way language is used for it changes. But you might say something we can also use colloquial references, say chitta is the hot spot of your awareness at any particular moment, like what's alive for you, that's where your chitta is. Um, what's happening to, to you, your experience of me, that's where chitta is. So we, when the chitta move, you know, turns away from the aggregates, you might say, well, it's not a thing that turns away, it's just one loses interest, one's interest inclines away from form. One's interest inclines away from feeling. One's interest inclines away from perceptions and meanings and interpretations. One's interest inclines away from making and doing and creating and organizing and satisfying and getting rid of volitional formations. One's interest inclines away from seeing, hearing, thinking. Hmm. With that inclining away, the subsiding of phenomena to attend to, intention itself relaxes. Nothing is therefore drawn up. Nothing is aggregated. Nothing is conglomerated. Nothing is reified. The subject dissolves. This is called anya, realization. But it's not as if jitta is some entity that's separate from the aggregates. It's just almost like a 
and uh, you could say in this sense it's almost like an attitude or an inclination it's a subtlety like that so we come in so yeah so you just reflecting on being aware of of experience where does your interest go within that hmm? so if we have fundamental just sitting here and you're being affected by something where does your interest go is that interest a thing or is it just a warming an inclining a quivering a fascination an uncertainty is it just that and could that quality itself be something we acknowledge, relate to? And it's just feeling. This is the perception. And you handle which aspect of experience is touching. Recognize that you know, it could be the colour of the mug or the colour of the bell, whether it's made of glass or plastic, how big it is. But which particular aspect touches you? It could be the beauty of it or you know, the fragility of it. Mm. You maybe wish you had one, the desirability of it. So then in that level, at that point, we can differentiate Well, that desirability that's a potential action isn't it that's a sankara that's a sankara activations one is activated I want one perception exquisite beautifully formed now naturally when that perception arises it could be the case that one's inclination is oh how fortunate for them. <laughs> they have mudita. <laughs> One's inclination could be, I want one. <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> you know, or something of this nature, or how much it costs. Or I could sell it to somebody. Uh, so the sankharas could be either, uh, we might say, to be followed. Because when we experience, look at that and see beauty, and we sense, oh, how beautiful. Somebody must have put a lot of attention into that craftsman, uh, care and attention, beautiful object. Uh, how many people can benefit from that? We mudita. Uh, so, so that would be useful to be followed, that sankara. Because what's the result? One's heart is freed from craving, uh, grasping, and instead it's lifted into a cheerful, happy state. Is this good or not? Yeah, that's better. Better than the other one anyway. Yeah. So, what is to be followed, what's not to be followed. And so, in the Dhamma, you have all these various ways and means of shifting Sankara. And in the, all the aggregates, the um, predominant one, I would suggest, well, I really <laughs> almost would state, <laughs> but I suggest it instead, is, um, is Sankara the activation, the conditioning factor that is the source of action. Because this is both, um, it's it's to do with morality for a start, it's to do with simplicity and contentment or 
needing more and accumulation. It's to do with control and and ownership. It's to do with um, advertence and neglect, uh, casualness. It's to do with karma, uh, generating particular mental habits that then stay or are almost incised into the citta. And jitta becomes something a little more seemingly like a real thing yeah, when we use that language. And this language is also used. Sometimes jitta is referred to as a thing. You know, one's jitta could be split. Yeah, as an example in the suttas where this yaka threatens the Buddha saying, I will split your chitta. Yeah. Which they interpret as drive you insane. Yeah. Of course, the Buddha says, I don't think so. <laughs> Friend, do you have a question? Please ask it. So he clearly was not impressed <laughs> by that. But, you know, so it can be a thing. But in terms of sankhara, volitional tendencies, on that angle, one experiences jitra as something that becomes extremely carved. Uh, um, yeah incised upon, scarred uh, by unskillful tendencies that then other that accumulate because if one accumulates and, and, uh, a tendency, uh, an inclination towards greed or competitiveness or aversion, then for sure fresh energy will run down that, that track and it will get deeper and more incised. This is the teachings on calm, isn't it? Where one takes jitta to almost be an object uh, you know, that could be terribly stained and bruised or could be bright and luminous and lifted up. Okay, that's For this purpose, that's a useful way of looking at it because that's what, that's what the experience is like. Sometimes one's jitta feels extremely like, uh, like an entity, you know, heavy, bowed down, crushed, shattered. You know. We're in a very contingent cosmos here. Things that seem like smoke one day seem like rock another day. So but the Sankara is the key because this is when you could have some say over pretty quickly. You could say, don't follow that. Yeah. Notice it, don't follow it, pull away and instead pause. Step back, linger. What's needed here? What's needed here? Okay, the desirable object, look at it as transient. Look at it as changeable. Look at it as not providing with satisfaction. Is that true? Yes, you've had plenty of them. You should know this by now. Okay, and following it does what? You know that too. Therefore, right? So you give yourself a little bit of a dumber lesson every time one of these crops up. But it's not to be, no point adding blame to that. Because this is another sankhara that then incises itself into the citta. You just add this careful parenting, like, no, stop, no, come back. This will hurt you. This is going to do you harm. No, come back. This is going to cause you suffering. Come back. And like caring, bringing it back. Yeah? 
And like they're saying, if the kid runs into the road, you just grab him and drag him out. You don't talk to them sweetly, the truck's bearing down upon them. You just grab them and pull them out, <laughs> talk about it later. <laughs> so there's that aspect to it, in, tra- in, in preserving the chitta, in looking after it. And it becomes an entity that one cares for. May my chitta not get lost. In you know, the wild and wacky and dangerous universe. So Sankara is, is a very significant key point uh, that we begin to recognize how we're being activated. Potentials, perceptions arise, what we're activated by, not things really, but perceptions of things. Interpretation, this means potential happiness. This means potential This means something, does it? Or does it just look like that? Yeah, we begin to recognize the lure, the decoy, the glow that phenomena, that perception can add to things. If one of these I would be, a glow. Sure, you bought one of those last year. How long did that last? So, you, you, so that, but then as you begin to cultivate restraining, then you can also begin to examine the trigger for Sankara. And of course, of all perceptions that arise, the perception of oneself. Another very curious and amorphous quality, but yet can seem as solid as a brick. Uh, it's really, it's the residues of citta, the traces, the tracks of citta, that which has been carved and formed. So the resultant karma, you could say. Also, the, the potentials for activation are experienced as myself. Take our intentions, our desires and aversions very personally as if this is me. Mm. And we take the results, the suffering, the grief, the disappointment, the success, very personally, I have realized, I have experienced this. Who? How are they the same, are they the same person? Who's that? Mm. So this is, these are, the, these are the acquisitions that have to be abandoned. The residues, the accumulations So, yeah. So you see, this this aggregate map is then has its its values. It's said that the sankara is the one that lights up all the others. Form is activated. Things come into form. Something in the citta, some quality, seizes upon, focuses upon. You know. Therefore, that form exists dependent upon the sankhara of attention and intention. Suddenly that comes into citta. As I was saying, this 60-foot high tree outside a school in London did not exist (laughs) for many people. 
because there was no intention, no attention, no interest in it. So it didn't arise in citta. So there was no activation, there was no admiring, no wishing to cut it down, no concern about its name, anything. It, it did not exist for some, for some people. Because Sankara could make it or not make it. So even in such an obvious thing as Rupa, as form, is conditioned, brought into existence, scooped up out of this conglomerate, amorphous mass by Sankara, by activations of attention, intention and contact, receiving it, being activated by it, recognizing it, otherwise it doesn't happen. This is the world of existence and and recognizing how contingent, how dependently arisen it is, dependent upon sankhara, sankhara vijnana, so dependent upon sankhara is consciousness, consciousness is loaded by what sankhara drives it to, focuses it upon, what inherent tendencies there are in the consciousness, creates the world that then becomes the object of consciousness, the problem of consciousness, yeah, the longing of consciousness. So this sankhara is then the hinge point that we work upon. In terms of practice, this means one is someone who begins to recognize those triggers. This is to be followed, this is not to be followed. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, just if you don't follow it, it's going to die more quickly, it's going to fade more quickly. And you can redirect that. And the lists of the ways and the skills and the beauties that one can redirect to must also be recognized. I mentioned mudita appreciative joy that somebody else is having a good time or something beautiful or somebody else did a good job to feel that mudita for the cook or the manager or the gardener or whatever how lovely that would be you know, out of all these conglomerate potentials you know. but then again you know, in meditation the potential for patience impatience is not to be followed where does it get you to you know, just following difficult feeling, mental feeling, not feeling so good, not feeling so well, not feeling so bright. Okay, is this news? What is to be followed? What is not to be followed? What is not to be followed is sorrow, depression, sadness. You know, feeling afflicted, feeling bowed down, feeling something's going wrong. These perceptions are not to be followed. What is to be followed is patience, discernment, clarity, responsiveness, relationship, what's happening, what's beautiful now. What's beautiful now? What's, can you come into your body and sense opening to difficult feeling? Relaxing. Because this, you use the body as a map for how you're being activated. This again is why Sankara is so crucial because it, trend, it crosses the jitta body territories. 
what sankara activates in your mind, you'll be able to detect that in your body. And therefore it's more there, less me. It's that tightening in the chest, it's that slumping, it's that sagging, it's that seizure, it's that freezing, it's that stirring. What's needed now? Widening, spreading attention, acceptance, patience, soothing, steadying, patience, steadying. Relinquish sankhara of agitation, despair, despond, blame, anxiety. Relinquish, not to be followed. Pick up, resilience, patience, resolution, goodwill. This is to be followed. To be followed, it cannot be other than for one's benefit. As we all know, you know, we will experience energy flows, fluctuations of energy, fluctuations of physical input. Uh, we don't always feel so good. Sometimes we feel pretty messy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What? So developing a response to that rather than fixating on it. This will be one's welfare. Because this physical system, yeah, it, it declines. It's not. Uh, what doesn't decline? Uh, what could possibly not decline? What could grow? Chitta. Grow that then. This is our advice. <laughs>